Well, while we're standing here, let me read the scripture that we're thinking about in these messages. This is at the end of 1 John. I'll begin with verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding in order that we might know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. We've been looking at the subject of idolatry. And as John ends up this letter with this admonition, little children, guard yourselves from idols. We know this must be pretty important if you would end the letter with that. So far we've looked at two prominent idols of the heart that are prevalent in today's culture. The idol of nature, which says that nature is the whole show, that natural processes can explain everything. Nature is sovereign over all, and in that view, if we hold that, people in one way or another end up worshiping and serving the creature rather than the Creator. So we need the Lord to keep us to, from this idol. It's all around us in terms of what's being taught in the uh, school systems and college campus. So we need to guard ourselves from this idol. And then last week we looked at another one that's all around us, and that is the idol of covetousness, or as... Jesus called it mammon. We pointed out that money itself is not evil, but it is very dangerous, very deceptive. The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And as Christians trusting in Christ, we should never put our trust in the uncertainty of riches. Rather, the more we know Christ, the better we know Christ, our lives will be filled with contentment and thankfulness and generosity. Those are the type of things that break the power of this idol of covetousness. So this morning then, I'd like to examine with you another major idol of our day. That's the idol of power. The idol of power. I want to start by quoting... A German philosopher who died in 1900, a man by the name of Friedrich Nietzsche. Sometimes I hear Nietzsche. And he was famous for this concept of the death of God. By that he didn't mean that God was alive and then died. But the, the idea of God that, that people have held for centuries was now to be done away with. So God was dead in the minds of people. Uh, he said that the primary desire, you might know if someone taught that type of a philosophy, he would say something like this. He said that the primary desire of all living things is what he called the will to power. The will to power. Let me just quote from him. He says, anything which is living and not a dying body will have to be an incarnate will to power. It will strive to grow, to spread, to seize, 
becoming predominant, not from any morality or immorality, but because it is living and because life simply is will to power. Exploitation belongs to the essence of what lives. Think of what he's saying here. Exploitation belongs to the essence of what lives as a basic organic function. It is a consequence of the will to power, which after all is the will to life. So he says if you're alive, this is what's going to mark you. This is what's going to be there, this will to power. That was in a book that he entitled Beyond Good and Evil. Quite a name. Well, he saw this will to power as a positive thing, something that if developed would bring about what he called the Ubermensch. That's a German word. Uber means over or superior. Mensch is man, so it sometimes gets translated superman. He was wanting to bring forth the superman. The superman. But that's not really, I mean, we you can't think about Clark Kent. You know, when, um, these would be unusual individuals who tower above the rest of humanity and are able to subordinate everything to their own self-mastery. In other words, they would be able to be in charge, to exploit, to be in dominion. He thought that the Christian ethic was detrimental to mankind because of its emphasis on meekness and humility. Those were bad things. Couldn't be an ubermensch with humility and meekness. He believed that such characteristics produced weakness. Now, he did see uh, that this idea of the death of God would usher in an extremely bloody century. He predicted that. Uh, which, of course, was the 20th century. He died in 1900. Do you realize that something like 160 million people were killed, not as combatants, not as, you know, military, but governments killing their own people? 160 million but apparently this was necessary in his view for the progress of life to bring about the ubermensch. Incidentally, Hitler, though he misunderstood much of what Nietzsche said, gave out copies of Nietzsche's work to some of his top Nazi leaders and also to his ally uh, Mussolini. So he thought that this teaching fit right in with what he was doing. Before I go on here, I just want to say that when we hear a number like 160 million, we need to think. The brutal dictator of the Soviet Union, Stalin, who also read Nietzsche, said this. He's reputed to have said, the death of one person is a tragedy, the death of one million is a statistic. But we can't allow ourselves to think like that. If we, we've got to realize what we're talking about when we talk about 160 million people being killed by an idea. Yeah. We're talking about this idol of power. Every one of those deaths was somebody's family member. 
Somebody like the person sitting next to you. So I want to emphasize that because we, we can't think about this thing, this idol of power, in an academic, detached manner. This idol is as evil as Moloch, that Old Testament idol, Canaanite idol that uh, people would offer their own children to, to be burned to death in the fires. Apparently there was some way they would bring their babies and children up to this idol and, and burn them. It's a terrible thing to think about, but you see this idol of power is responsible for unbelievable suffering and death. What I'm trying to say is this is just, what we're talking about today is just as evil as anything you can imagine in relationship to Moloch. We should be, when we think about this thing of power, the way we're looking at it here today, we should be repulsed. The same way we would be repulsed by Moloch, we should be repulsed and not attracted by this. But we could ask ourselves this question, was Nietzsche wrong? And I actually think that power is a desire for multitudes of people. It's one of the main idols of the heart. He was wrong to say it was a positive thing, but he wasn't wrong to say that it's very common, that it's, it's there in the human race. And I think we can trace it back, clear back to the beginning, to Adam and Eve's desire to be like God. And we can actually trace it back further than that. We can trace it back to Satan. We're told in Isaiah 14, 13, this is um, usually ascribed to Satan, although let me just say this, this is in the context of words, prophecy against Babylon. And that's significant because I'm going to be talking about Babylon here in a little bit. But most commentators think this, even though it was addressed to the king of Babylon, actually applies to Satan. And here's what he says. Here's what Satan says. I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. What's that talking about? That's talking about power, my throne. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will make myself like the most high. Again, that's this power, you see, the idol of power. So this will to power actually is something that's on a cosmic scale when you start thinking about Satan being the one who is a prime example of this. But then we need to ask ourselves, is power necessarily evil? Well, the answer should be no, because God is almighty. As one man put it, he was speaking in terms of humanity here, he said, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But we should praise God that he's not like that. I mean, we should be glad that God's God. That means he has all power. That's what God means. When you're God, you have all power. We should be so thankful 
that the one who has all power is also holy and righteous and good and just. Because it's not that way on the human level. Because there, power does corrupt. Just think of the heartache and unbelievable evil that has come by way of totalitarian rulers just in the last century. And then if you go out throughout history, it's just incredible. Part of the depravity of man is that in general, the kind of power that people seek is not pleasing to God. It's a selfish, sinful power. But it doesn't have to be that way in terms of the power of God towards us who believe. And we'll talk more about that towards the end of the message. But first, what I'd like to do is just trace briefly some of the manifestations of this idol of power through biblical accounts and then through some history after the time of the closing of the scriptures. So, first of all, we already said Adam and Eve, but you have soon after the fall, you have Cain overpowering Abel. A little bit later, we read about a man named Lamech who was boasting about killing a man and a boy. Later, still, we know that the reason that God brings a flood upon the whole world is that uh, the world was filled with corruption and violence, we're told. But the problem wasn't solved by the flood because God instituted capital punishment for murder. So we know there was still this problem. Earthly governments seem to be one way that God intended for the misuse of power to be restrained. In other words, governments were put there to restrain evil so that society could achieve some measure of safety and order. If the state is to perform that function to restrain evil and promote good, it had to have the power of the sword, which Romans 13 tells us about. Because those that govern are also sinful, there was also the possibility of this power being abused, and it has been. As we've seen over and over throughout history, emperors and kings and military leaders and governmental leaders of all types abuse power in ways that are idolatrous. Power can become an idol wherever authority structures are set up, in the state, in religion, in the home, in business, in every, any, any and every human organization where power is used in ungodly ways. But in this message this morning, I'd like to zero in on this idol of power as it relates to the state. We could use many examples from the Old Testament, but like I mentioned earlier, I want to use Babylon, or as it's sometimes called, the Chaldeans, to demonstrate this idol of power. So let's turn to Habakkuk chapter 1. Habakkuk's a little bit hard to find, but if you go to the end of the Old Testament and start working back in, it's just a few books back in from the end of the Old Testament.
So, Habakkuk, chapter 1. God had raised up the mighty Chaldean army to bring judgment upon his disobedient people, the Jewish people at that time. But the Chaldeans didn't view themselves as God's instrument of punishment. They just saw themselves as a mighty army, a great people. So let's start reading here in, uh, oh, let's see, verse 6. Is God speaking? For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize the dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originates with themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like eagles swooping down on, to devour. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces moves forward. They collect captives like sand. They mock at kings, and rulers are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress. They heap up rubble and capture it. They, then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on. But they will be held guilty. They whose strength is their God. That's the verb verse I wanted to get to. Their strength is their God. We're talking about this idol of power. So far as they, see God was using them as an instrument of judgment, but as far as they were concerned, their justice and authority and power originated with themselves. And they worshipped their military strength and might. Their strength was their God. Apparently this was even uh, a situation where they would offer sacrifices to their military tactics and tools. You can read about that in verse 14 through 17. I won't go into it now, but you can see they were offering sacrifices to their nets and their hooks, and that's they, these nets and hooks were apparently things that they used in warfare. But they were sacrificing to these things because these were their gods. <clears throat> Often military leaders and emperors exalt in power. We see this in one of the most famous examples of the Babylonians, and that would be Nebuchadnezzar. So let's turn to the book of Daniel. Just keep going back uh, a little bit further in the, in the Old Testament. You come to Daniel. Chapter 4, this is the account, maybe I won't even, I'll just tell you, you can read it on your own here. We have this account of Nebuchadnezzar walking on the roof of his royal palace in Babylon. When we think of this, we ought to think that he was probably looking out on what we now call one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. You've probably heard of those. Well, that was in his time, so as he's looking out here, surveying all that he's done, he was probably looking out at the, these Hanging Gardens. Anyway, we're told, chapter 4, 
verse 30. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? So he's glorying in what he's done here and it, by his power and for the glory of his majesty. Like many rulers throughout history, he was reveling in his power. But we're told that while the word was still in the king's mouth, there came from heaven saying, voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you, and you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is the ruler over the realms of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. The Most High is the ruler. So Nebuchadnezzar finds out where power really resides and that God is able to humble those who walk in pride. Isaiah talks about this, same thing. He says in Isaiah 40, he said, God reduces rulers to nothing. God reduces rulers to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted. Scarcely have they been sown. Scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth. But he, that is God, merely blows on them and they wither. And the storm carries them away like stubble. I was thinking when I read that, the storm carrying them away like stubble. You know, rulers and nations like to have, have these symbols, you know, display the symbols of power. They, they might be eagles or bulls or bears or tigers or lightning bolts or swords or crowns or hammers. I mean, all these things are symbols of power. Clenched fist. How about stubble? Wouldn't that be a good one? That's what God says here. He merely blows and blows on them, and the storm blows them away like stubble. So pick as your symbol of authority stubble. Well, I probably wouldn't get the job of propaganda minister for any country. Uh, Well, Babylon, it represented this type of military power, but it also represented another kind of idolatrous power, the power of false religion. We see this in the uh, 90-foot high golden image that Nebuchadnezzar set up. Remember the account there? If you turn back to chapter 3, everybody was commanded to fall down and worship this image. Just read it here. Chapter 3, we'll just read a little of the account. Verses 4 through 7. This is what was supposed to happen after this image was set up. <clears throat> then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men from every language, 
that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. For whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of the fire, the furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, at the time when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men from every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. So, you know, one of the powers of, of the, the military and the power of religion has to do a lot with this pageantry and all this pomp and music and things that can stir you. They were using that here very clearly in this setting to bring about worship. Everybody was to fall down and worship. And everybody did, it says, except three men. Three people who were willing to resist the power of this idolatry. So I want to just draw a couple lessons from these accounts related to Babylon here. First, we must resist any idolizing or deification of military or political power. These things come at us constantly. Any deification or idolizing of that type of power. Second, we must be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and we must not give in to this idol of religious power. This is what was being pushed on them there in Babylon. This type of thing becomes even more clear if we fast forward to the time of the apostles. There you see that Christ and his followers are having to deal with both the military and governmental idol of power and the religious idol of power. You remember in Acts chapter 4, we're told that the kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers, and I think that's probably the religious rulers, were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city, that is in Jerusalem, they were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So you have, you have the... Roman power structure and the Jewish power structure coming against Christ. And on top of that, you have the manipulated mob bringing forth its own power dynamic in the midst of what happened here with Christ. But you know, in all of this, in ways we can't comprehend, the power of God was in control. These powers were being exercised by evil men to do whatever God's hand and purpose predestined to occur. We cannot understand this. It, this is incomprehensible omnipotence, unsearchable sovereignty, power like we cannot understand. Jesus actually spoke of this to Pilate 
this inscrutable power. Let's turn to John chapter 19. This is the account of Christ before Pilate. And we'll just uh, cut into the account here at verse 10. When Jesus didn't answer some of the things that Pilate was asking him. Verse 10 says, Pilate therefore said to him, You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you? And I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me up to you has the greater sin. Now these are a little bit hard to understand, but uh, I believe that what Jesus is saying here, he's telling Pilate, who thought he had the power of life and death over Christ, that he really didn't have that power. He didn't have the power he thought he did. That God was in control of all that was taking place. But then he adds this. Nevertheless, those involved were responsible for their sin. This is the same incredible uh, exercise of power that we can't understand. God's in control of all of this, and yet these people are evil in what they're doing. He says, He who delivered me up to you has the greater sin. He's not talking about God there. He's talking about people like Caiaphas, the high priest, and the Jewish leaders that turned Jesus over to Pilate. And stirred up the mob. You see that if you look back in chapter 18, verse 35. Pilate answered, am I, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you up to me. What have you done? In other words, he, he's saying your chief priests are the ones that have delivered you up to me. If you turn back to Matthew chapter 27, you see how the mob was stirred up by these uh, Jewish leaders. Matthew 27. We're talking about the various aspects of power that were being displayed here. Matthew 27, verse 20. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitudes to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor answered and said to them, which, which, of you, which of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, What then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They said, they, they said Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more. This is what happens with a mob. They kept shouting all the more, let him be crucified. And when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the multitude, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourself. And all the people answered and said, His blood be upon us and our children. So I'm saying that you have this 
this power structure of the, the Roman government. You have this power structure of the Jewish high priests. Then you have this mob that's stirred up, the power that's involved there. All this is being brought against Christ. And yet, over all of this is the power of God. So we're talking about this idol of power, which we see these three aspects of here, religious power, governmental power, and, and mob rule, where the multitudes are manipulated into thinking what they're doing is something good. There is a power that comes from mass movements and rulers and, and religious leaders can play upon that power where people are carried along with the crowd to do things that they'd never do on their own. And it, it's a power that shrewd religious leaders and political leaders know how to exploit and manipulate. Well, I'm skipping around here a lot. I'm, uh, I know, I hope you can follow the train of thought, but these idols of power are exactly what we see being presented in the book of Revelation. And I can't go into this in much detail now, but let me just say that the book of Revelation is all about the triumphant power of Christ over the principalities and powers and rulers of this world who oppose God's people. That's what the book's about. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ and his power over all other powers. Those opposing powers, those that opposed Christ and his people, were symbolized by a dragon, a false prophet, furious beasts, and a Babylon the Great. We know that the dragon symbolized Satan, and these other images are symbols for the religious and political leaders of that time who were persecuting the church. Specifically, this would be the false religious systems, especially unbelieving Israel, and the Caesar cult. By the Caesar called, I'm talking about the fact that the empire, emperor demanded worship and persecuted the Christians that wouldn't worship that way. Let me just quote from an article by a man named William Ramsey concerning this emperor worship. Now, this is what was taking place in the time of the book of, of Revelation. Uh, actually, he starts a little bit earlier. In the time of Julius Caesar who allowed himself to be worshipped as a god. His successor, Augustus, was known from inscriptions as the Son of God, that is, the Son of the Eternal Caesar. Oaths were taken on the divine spirit of the emperor. His image was publicly adored. Worship of his image was a regular military duty. Another emperor soon after that, Caligula, was the first emperor to demand worship. These others allowed it. Caligula demanded worship, and he demanded that every citizen bow to his statue. Nero, the first emperor to persecute Christians, the emperor at the time, Peter and Paul and the early church, he was the first to, uh, as I said, persecute Christians, he also claimed to be divine. He considered himself Apollo incarnate. Even the writer Seneca called him the long-awaited savior of the world. We're talking about Nero. Although Nero actually had Seneca 
commit suicide later on, so I might have changed his mind about that. Domitian took the title Lord and God. He was called God of all things, Lord of eternity to eternity. Lord from eternity to eternity. These were the emperors, you see, at the time of the early church. Now, I think it's good to note, in light of these claims of godhood, that Caesar was murdered, Caligula was killed by an officer of his Praetorian guard, Nero committed suicide, and Domitian was murdered. So this is not a very good track record for gods. Well, back to the book of Revelation. Of the seven cities that are mentioned in the churches in various cities in chapters 2 and 3, six of those cities were known to have temples dedicated to the imperial cult, emperor worship. So this was all around the early Christians, you see. The early Christians saw this as an idol of power, that the emperor that this whole thing of emperor worship was something demonic, something that Satan brought about. As it says in, the, in chapter 13 of Revelation, the dragon, that is Satan, gave, beast, who is, gave the beast, who is most likely Nero, and this whole governmental emperor called his power. So Satan gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. So people were worshiping this, the beast, which is the emperor, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war with him? And there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for forty-two months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God, to blaspheme his name and his temple, that is, God's people, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was given to him to make war on the saints and to overcome them, and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given him. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written in the from the foundation of the world in the Lamb's Book of Life. You had two groups of people. You had those that were bowing to Caesar and those that were bowing to Christ. And that was a very real situation that the early church found itself in for the first three centuries of its existence. The issue was Caesar or Christ, who was the Lord. One writer put it this way, To deny Caesar and the state as man's Lord and Savior was considered atheism. They actually called Christians atheists because they wouldn't, bow to Caesar, the God, and this whole state system. For the true God existed for them only in the state. But you know, things changed drastically in the so-called conversion of Constantine. Suddenly the power of the state was on the side of the church. And I intended to trace how this idol of power, especially religious power, affected professing Christianity after the time of Constantine, but this message got too long. So I had to cut that out. Where are we at? Yep, got to keep going. But I'm leaving, I'm going to leave that whole part out. Uh, we'll have to deal with that another time. So what I want to do now is fast forward. We've been looking at the time 
of the early church. I want to fast forward to modern times. Because you might say, well, all that was like that way back, you know, in the time of the Romans and and, uh, these crazy emperors. Is the state ever viewed as an idol in the modern world? The answer, of course, is yes, it is. Anytime the state is is viewed as having ultimate authority, you've made an idol of the state. Listen to what the famous German philosopher, I quoted Nietzsche earlier, well, this is another German philosopher, Frederick Hegel. This is what he said about the state. The universal is to be found in the state. The state is the divine idea as it exists on earth. We must, therefore, worship the state. Now, this, this is a famous German philosopher. We must worship the state as the manifestation of the divine on earth. The state is, is the march of God through the world. That is just another form of idolatry, what he's saying there. And I would say these are doctrines of demons. You know, normally when the Bible talks, when we read about the doctrines of demons, we're thinking about something that's uh, there in the church that's, that's trying to steer people in the wrong direction, a false doctrine. But there's false doctrines all around us, not just in, in uh, professing Christianity. These kind of doctrines, these kind of teachings have to be demonic if you think of where they lead. If you combine this view of the state that Hegel had with Nietzsche's will to power, you know what you end up with? You end up with Nazism and concentration camps. That's exactly where you end. Ideas have consequences. And evil ideas have evil consequences. The idolized state usually finds expression through a powerful leader who becomes an idol himself. And you saw that with Hitler and Stalin and Mao, as well as other 20th century leaders. Let me just use one more example from the time of World War II, and that would be the emperor of Japan, Hirohito. We don't hear as much about him, but it was another example of a person claiming to be God. Shinto was the ancient religion of Japan, which at the time of World War II had become a patriotic cult. It taught that the emperor was the direct descendant of the sun god and that the Japanese were a superior race. It's amazing that all this was happening at once, isn't it? It's just incredible what was happening. Anyway, at, at the end of World War II, part of the unconditional surrender of Japan, we insisted that Hirohito tell the Japanese people that he was not God. Here's part of the statement that he made. The ties between us, that is the royal family, and our people are not predicated on the false conception that the emperor is divine. He says that's, that's a false conception, that the emperor is divine and that the, German, or that the Japanese people are a superior race 
and are fated to rule the world. And then he said, very simply, the emperor is not a living god. He had to make, he made that statement to the Japanese people. Now, I just want to extend kind of from that to say that eventually every person that has ever abused power will be forced to make an even greater acknowledgement, and that is that Jesus Christ is Lord. Everybody's going to have to bow. Now, I don't care what kind of power, what place of power you had, Everyone, every knee is going to bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So, I need to try to draw this to some kind of conclusion. Uh, first of all, then, I'd say the obvious thing should be that the state is not God. It's not our Lord. It should not be idolized. We should not look to it as our Savior. Our ultimate welfare does not come from the state. We should realize that there will be this tendency, especially by those in power, to be corrupted by power. That was one of the reasons that the founding fathers of the United States set up three branches of government so that there could be checks and balances, so they could check and balance one another. Those who drew up the Constitution were especially concerned about the executive branch, and so should we be. Uh, that it should not get to be so powerful that they'd again have a king. In other words, they were concerned about this corrupting power of power, this idol of power. Now, I just want to take a little excursion here to say a couple things that, from something that I read by Charles Colson because I had some really interesting things to share about this desire for power in government. For those of you that don't know of Charles Colson, let me just say that he was President Nixon's on his staff of President Nixon. He was involved in this Watergate break-in, which ended up uh, putting him in prison, putting Colson in prison. But through that, God brought him to Christ and he started a group called Prison Fellowship, and he also was used to advance the cause of Christ through his books and his speaking. So one of those books that I'm going to quote from here is called God and Government. And uh, the chapter that I want to quote from is called The Problem of Power. The Problem of Power. He says in this book that for most... For the most part, Nietzsche's will to power fuels political passions in every culture. And he said, I've seen it up close, because he was right in the midst of it. I've seen it up close, this will to power in action. He tells, of, he tells how he thought of being part of the inner circle of the president there, President Nixon, was like the pinnacle of power something he'd been striving for all his life. And he, he tells when he was first brought into the staff of uh, the president that he, had a, that he had an office way down the hall from the president. But all these guys that were on this staff were always maneuvering, trying to get their office a little closer to the president because you're closer to the power, you see. And eventually he gets his office right next door to the president. And he said this, he talked about the feeling he had 
to know that the president was on the other side of the wall. Incredible, isn't it? But these things get a hold of you, and this happens. I think this happens often with the, the politicians. They don't realize they're going, into, they're going into a place where there's so much power, the idol of power gets a hold of them. Anyway, he talks about this. And uh, once he was at, had that office next to the president, his name was showing up so much more in the papers and in the, in the national periodicals which is really important, and he was invited to more socially, the Washington social events. He talks about how visibility and notoriety are signs of power. But I wanted to read something to you here that I, I thought was incredible, and I, I'll have to paraphrase some of it because it's a little too long to read it all. But... Uh, he was telling of an incident. Now, at this time, Henry Kissinger uh, was the national security advisor, so he had a position higher than Colson's. You know, he had a little more power. And there was a situation that came up that the president, I, I, I can't go into the details here, but the president asked Colson to call the former president, that is Lyndon Johnson, and uh, get something taken care of. He said, now, I, I'm going to go to bed, just call him, get it taken care of, and call Kissinger and tell him that you're calling Lyndon. That's Lyndon Johnson. So I'll just pick up the account right there. Good, good, said Nixon. You get it done. Don't bother to call me. Call me back. I'm going to bed early. So dutifully... Following orders, I called Kissinger, the National Security Advisor, who admittedly had had a bad day and was outraged. Kissinger says, if anyone is to call the former president, President Johnson, it's me. Nothing I said made any difference, so I played my trump card. But the president ordered me, Henry, I'm supposed to call. <clears throat> Then I will call the president, and he will reverse that order, Kissinger replied. In our power game, Kissinger had checked me. The president had been up most of the night before. He needed sleep. Besides, he shouldn't have to bother with such squabbles. Kissinger knew this, and he knew that I knew it. I hesitated a moment, then folded. Okay, Henry, let's agree that neither of us will call until the morning. Then we'll ask the president when we see him at 8 in the morning who should make the call. Good, Chuck. That's a very good idea, he said. Now, this gets so childish. But now, you promise me, you promise me that you won't bother him at all tonight. You have my word, Chuck, Kissinger said. The heat of, the, of our exchange left no doubt in my mind that the call to Johnson was important, important to Kissinger. Perhaps he feared that my making the call would indicate he was losing some of his influence or that I was taking responsibility for national security affairs. Whatever he was thinking, I, was I, was, I wasn't surprised at the White House operator's reply when I called ten minutes later to ask if anybody had called the president. 
Oh, yes, sir, she replied. Dr. Kissinger called ten minutes ago. Later that night, Kissinger placed a call to Lyndon Johnson. Maintaining the appearance of power is also paramount, even when the reality is inconsequential. In other words, it's just a, a power thing, you see. I'm going to make this call, not you, even if it wasn't all that important. When he goes on and talks about this kind of stuff uh, in a number of incidents that he was involved in there at the White House, the idol of power is a very real danger for anyone who, in position of authority. On the one hand, we need to realize that that power is going to be there in those types of situations. On the other hand, we should not think that all government is evil or demonic or that the realm of government power is the realm of Satan, so Christians should stay out of it. Actually, the Bible teaches that there's no authority except from God and that government is to be a minister of God for good. Government is to restrain evil and promote good. You see that in Romans chapter 13. You also see it in 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14. So it stands to reason that Christians should try to influence it in that direction. If, it's, if government's supposed to promote good and restrain evil, we ought to be uh, trying to influence it in that direction. You know, it's very similar to what we said about money. Money itself is not evil, but it can be deceptive and dangerous, and the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. So power is not corrupt in itself, but it is dangerous and deceptive, and it will tempt the person who wants to promote self and advance his agenda. All right, we're just about done. I'm just trying to throw in a few things here towards the end of the in this area of understanding this idol of power in relationship to the state. Another thing we should realize is that the governments should not compel religion, and that's happened down through the centuries. Both Catholics and Protestants have been guilty of that, and much of Islam is guilty of that right now. Uh, with the coming of Christ, any type of theocracy was done away with. That is, that what you see of that now, like in Islam, is uh, certainly a terrible manifestation of, of wrong use of government. God became, when God had that situation in the Old Testament, that was a one-time thing for the nation of Israel. So theocracies are not pleasing to God. Because Christ taught that his kingdom is not of this world and that true faith cannot be compelled, cannot be compelled by force. It's, true faith is an internal work of the Holy Spirit. You must be born again. God does that and governments can't force it. But we'll talk about that more, Lord willing, if we deal with this idol of religion. On the other hand, governments should not exclude religion by prohibiting the free speech uh, of people in any area. 
God intends governments to legislate morality. Now think about that. God intends governments to legislate morality. When you make laws, that's what you do. And God intends governments to make good laws, to promote good and restrain evil. So to exclude religion and allow atheists or unbelievers to do all the legislating is certainly not going to bring forth that type of a government. Totalitarian governments almost always want to exclude or even eliminate religion, especially Christianity, because they want to control, total control, and desire to have the final authority in all things. Christianity challenges that, challenges that type of authority. To say that Christ is Lord challenges every dictator. We are to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and God the things that are God's, but ultimately God, not Caesar, determines what belongs to Caesar and what belongs to God, and Caesar doesn't like that. Well, I've got to bring this to a close. So the way that Jesus deals with this idol of power and his people is by teaching them that the first shall be last, that serving others is the way to greatness in his kingdom, that whoever wants to be first must be the servant of all, and that his power is made perfect in weakness. On top of all that, we know that Christ, Christ himself is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Just as a little postscript, I mentioned Nietzsche a number of times here, all this stuff about the will of power and the ubermensch and his proclaiming the death of God. It is another example of the, oh, how God works things. Nietzsche spent the last 11 years of his life in an insane asylum. And it's reported that he, he would mumble things like this. I am dead because I am stupid. I am stupid because I am dead. Just spend his days mumbling. Actually, although that sounds like nonsense, it's probably one of the closer things that he said to the truth. I am dead because I am stupid. I am stupid because I am dead. He was dead. Spiritually, and he was stupid. Perhaps God was demonstrating where believing in this will to power and the ubermensch will lead by just giving us another little example here in his, in Nietzsche's life. Well, may we, as his people, his servant community, keep ourselves from this idol of power and demonstrate the right use of whatever power God would give us to advance his kingdom. <clears throat>